we're here today um, with Dr. James Grime, who is uh, apparently a big fan of Alan Turing. Um, he's brought along a genuine, authentic Enigma machine. Um, and he's taken a, well, break from his jet-setting lifestyle of traveling around the world to um, come and give a talk in his hometown. Um, so without further ado, I will hand over to James. Over to me, okay, brilliant. Uh, right, I'll get started. Uh, first of all, I'll start by saying hi to everyone, first of all. Hi, everyone. Hey, nice to meet you all, hi. So let me introduce myself first. So I'm James, uh, I am a mathematician, don't hold it against me though, okay? I'm very nice really, I promise. And I'm here to talk about my favorite scientist, is a man called uh, Alan Turing. So Alan Turing, in case you don't know, was a mathematician like myself. He was a mathematician, he's the father of computer science, and he was a World War II code breaker. So first of all, who's heard of Alan Turing before? Let's have a look. Oh, no, everyone, I thought so, yeah, I thought you had. Have you seen the film? Did you see the film last year? Yeah, The Imitation Game, with Benedict Cumberbatch being Alan Turing. So it was all about Alan Turing breaking codes in World War II. Now, because I'm a mathematician and because I'm an Alan Turing fan, uh, people do ask me what I thought of the film. Uh, so I thought I'd answer that question first. So if this works, what's coming up on the screen next? It's actually a picture of me while I was watching The Imitation Game. Uh, if this does work, uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, so I don't want to disappoint you, uh, but the imitation game is not very accurate. Oh, I'm sorry, because I know people love it, and I know it's a good film, but it's not a very accurate film. Uh, but it is about Alan Turing breaking Enigma codes in World War II. That, these, that, that at least is correct. So, okay, let's start with this. So in a war, so we're talking about World War II, you've got secrets to keep. You want to keep your secrets away from your enemies. You're going to send your secrets in code so your enemies can't find out what you're doing. So in World War II, Nazi Germany had a code machine called the Enigma machine, which was an incredibly difficult code to work out. They thought they had an unbreakable code. Uh, and that's what I thought here. So this thing here, down here at the front, is an Enigma machine. It's an original Enigma machine, so I'm going to stress this now. This is not a copy, it's not a replica. This it was actually used in World War II. This is now 81 years old. It was actually used in World War II. Uh, I'm going to show you how this works, but not yet. Okay, I'm building up to this. I'm building up to it, all right? So this is my plan. Uh, I want to tell you a little bit about Alan Turing, and I want to start with Alan Turing uh, as a young adult, so as a child, as a young adult. And my plan is I want to show you the things that he was interested in as a child and how they influenced what he did in later life. Uh, so to that end, what I thought I'd start with is I thought I'd show you uh, Alan Turing's favorite chemistry experiment. So uh, Alan Turing's favorite chemistry experiment, this is something he used to do at school, and it's called the iodine clock reaction. Now, out of interest, anyone seen this before? We've got a few here. We've got a few. Not everyone, though. So, okay, this reaction, I'm going to try and do this live. Now, bear with me. I am not a chemist. All right? I am a mathematician, not a chemist. But I am going to actually try and do this live. So, we've got these two solutions here. So, in the first one, we have what, sodium sulfide, citric acid starch. In the second one, we've got sodium iodate. Okay. And we're going to try and mix these together. Now, I've got these down here. I've prepared this. And if I switch to my camera, we can see, there we go, you, I have these two solutions. So we're going to see what happens. So I'm going to unscrew these. I'm going to open these up. We're going to mix them together. As you can see, they are both two colorless liquids. But if this does work, let's just mix them together. Now, if you keep watching, something will happen. Okay, fingers crossed, zoom, and it will suddenly change color. So this uh, clock reaction was something that Alan Turing used to do at school. He actually did an investigation in this uh, because he wanted to find out how fast those reactions happen. Do you want to see that again? Actually, I can do this again. In case that didn't work, I did have a backup plan. So I do have a video here so we can see this happening again. 
so in this video, same thing. We've got these two mixtures. Mix them together. Give them a little swirl. We're going to pour them out into this spare glass. And if we do that, keep watching. And suddenly it changes colour. In fact, in fact, this is even better. I can show you one more. This is even better. This is my favourite. I'll do it, I'll do it one more time. This is a really good one. All right, so this one, we've got the two mixtures again. Same thing. This one is going to mix into this jug here, as you can see. Uh, and he's going to pour it out. Watch what happens when he pours this out. <laughs> ah, it's good, isn't it? It's great. Now, if you change the quantities of each of these, if you change the proportions of each of these components, then you actually change the timing of that color change. So you can make it longer, you can make it shorter. And by changing those components, you can actually measure the rate of reaction. So what's happening here, again, I'm not a chemist, but uh, I had this explained to me. So when we're releasing the iodine here in the sodium iodate, it's releasing the iodine, it gets gobbled up by the sodium here, gets gobbled up by the sodium, and then when all the sodium is taken up, we're still releasing iodine, so it's got nowhere else to go. It reacts with the starch, and then it turns black. So if you change the proportions, you can start to measure how long those reactions take. That's what Alan Turing did at school. It was actually a bit of a maths investigation and a chemistry investigation at the same time. So you could uh, measure the different rates of reaction. He actually won a prize for doing that, uh, but he was always a fan of science, even as a kid. If I go back, way back to the beginning here, and uh, this is uh, Alan Turing as a child there, bless him. Look at him in his little sailor suit, isn't he cute? So there's Alan Shoring. Now, his uh, father was a civil servant. His mother came from a family of engineers, but they spent a lot of time in India. Uh, so Alan Shoring actually spent a lot of time with friends and family, being brought up with friends and family, and they did not necessarily encourage his scientific interests. It's a bit of a shame. Uh, his, uh, his need for experimentation was interpreted as naughtiness. Uh, there was, there's a good story of him where he, would, uh, he took his uh, toy soldiers, he took his toys, toy soldiers and he planted them in the back garden hoping to grow more, <laughs> uh, which didn't work, uh, it didn't work. Uh, but he was always interested in sort of the natural world, how things grow, biology. So at some point, someone bought him a science book. It was this book, it was called Natural Wonders Every Child Should Know. So this was a science book. Proper science, but written for children, written in an accessible way for children. And Alan Turing credits this as a huge influence on his life from then on. Uh, but yeah, so he started working at school. He started uh, doing these things at school. Uh, but even at school, he wasn't really encouraged. Uh, and we know this because what I can show you now is Alan Turing's school reports. So I'm going to show you now. These, this is Alan Turing's school reports. Okay, so this is his first one. His first one is from his uh, housemaster. He has good brains as any boy that's been here. And they're good enough for him to get even through useless subjects, <laughs> such as Latin, French, and English. <laughs> I think it was his housemaster who thought those subjects were useless. Not, no, I think it's Alan Turing who thought that was useless, not his housemaster. Uh, his maths report is not much better. This is his maths report. Not very good. He spends a good deal of time, apparently, in investigations in advanced mathematics to the neglect of his elementary work. His work is dirty. And then this is from his uh, headmaster. I hope he will not fall between two stools. If he's to stay at public school, he must aim at becoming educated. If he's to be solely a scientific specialist, he is wasting his time at public school. Can you feel the disapproval coming off him? I always imagine him saying that while holding a pipe. Oh, Choring, wasting your tight science. So he's not being encouraged. The other kids at school, I mean, he was well-liked. He was a shy kid, but he was well-liked. Um, but they, they weren't really science nerds like Alan Choring was. Uh, his experiments were kind of annoying, uh, a bit smelly. Uh, but there was one kid who was a science nerd who he got on with, which was, a kid, I think he was like a year older, it was a kid called uh, Christopher Morecambe. Oh, sorry about that. Christopher Morecambe was a science nerd. It was actually Christopher Morecambe who introduced Alan Turing to this uh, clock experiment here. 
Now, unfortunately, Christopher Morcom died uh, tragically young. I think he died, he was like 18, he died young, uh, which really affected Alan Turing, really upset Alan Turing. Uh, but it's kind of fitting then, because the school then set up a science prize in honour of Christopher Morcom. It was the Christopher Morcom Science Prize. And the first winner of the Christopher Morcom Science Prize was Alan Turing for his investigation in this chemistry experiment here, which I think is rather nice. And his prize was a book, and it was this book. So it's a, a mathematical book. So, yeah, it's here, in fact, I've got it here. This is my copy, same book. So this is a very popular uh, book with maths nerds. Uh, it's got oh, yeah, interesting maths things in it, uh, magic squares and other things like this. So this is what he won. But the last chapter in this book is about codes. It's about codes and secret messages. Uh, in fact, uh, Alan Turing's favorite code, which he got from out of this, uh, is something called a grill cipher. Uh, so a grill cipher is not a very hard code to do, but this was Alan Turing's favorite. Uh, all you have to do is take a piece of text like that. What we're going to do is you put a piece of paper over the top. So this is a bit of Hamlet here, if you notice. You put a piece of paper over the top with holes cut out so you can spell a message through the holes. In fact, that example I've put on the screen, I've actually got here. So I want to see if someone can read this secret message. I'm looking for someone who can decode this. Go ahead. So see if you can decode this before I finish this story. So Alan Turing, I picked uh, Hamlet because uh, Alan Turing had to study Hamlet at school and he hated it. He hated it, which was very disappointing to his dad. Uh, although he did say to his dad, oh, I do have one favorite line. Oh, his dad went, oh, great. Oh, yeah, there's at least one thing you like in it. But that turned out to be the last line. Uh, so now, if I put this uh, piece of paper over the top of this bit of Hamlet, what did it say? No more Shakespeare. No more Shakespeare. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, not having, no, not being particularly encouraged at school, but of course he does graduate. He then goes and studies maths at King's College here in Cambridge. There it is, looking very pretty. And this was a, a place where he could finally be free, somewhere where he could actually be himself for the first time which he appreciated. And it's actually, this is the time when he decided to take on one of the great unsolved problems in maths. Now, this problem that I'm going to tell you about is about uh, truth. It's about whether something is true or false and deciding whether something is true or false. So to show you how this works, what I thought is I have a little, little quiz. We're going to have three true or false questions, all right? We're going to see if we can work out if they're true or false, all right? So true or false. We're going to do three of these. The first one, they're all going to be a little bit mathsy, don't worry. All right, first one, let's see if we can work it out. An even number plus an even number is an even number. Now, I don't know, I think that might be a little bit easy, but we'll see. Now, I'll tell you what, we'll have time. We've got young people here as well. So if I give you 10 seconds, right, especially to the young people, turn to the person next to you, have a chat. Is that true or false? That's my question. <laughs> All right, I'll stop you. I'll take a vote. All right, I'm going to vote. For, okay, votes for true. Oh, all right, and votes for false. Oh, okay, I think, yeah, true, and it is true. Of course, it is true. It's true, and it's not difficult to prove. If you wanted to prove it, in fact, with a little bit of algebra, a lot, you can prove it. So you can prove that is true. Okay, here's my second question. Okay, an odd number can always be written as the sum of two odd numbers. So if you take an odd number, you can write it so we have two odd numbers written together or added together. Now, I'll give you 10 seconds again. Is that true or false? Did it back on you while we're waiting. <laughs> odd integers, yeah. Although integers are the only thing that can be odd. You, can't, you don't have odd, ra rational, irrational numbers. Okay. Uh, votes then. Votes for true. Ooh. Votes for false. Okay, it is false. Okay, must have been easy. 
And to show that it's false, all you need to do is find an example where it doesn't work. So if I just use positive numbers, that would be quite easy because I could show that three, which is a small odd number, you can't, that doesn't work. You can't do it. Okay, so you just find an example where it doesn't work and you've proven it's false. All right, next question. An even number can always be written as a sum of two prime numbers. If you don't know, the primes are those numbers you may remember from school, numbers that can only be divided by one and itself, two, three, five, seven, <laughs> eleven, and the rest. An even number can always be written as the sum of two primes. Is that true or false? A lot of discussion on that one. All right, I'm going to force an answer out of you. All right. So let's take a vote. Votes for true. Do you think that's true? Votes for false. Oh, now they see that. That's, uh, that's a mo I don't know. I think that was slightly on the false side. So does someone have an example where it doesn't work then? Do you think you have an example where it doesn't work? Ah, uh, uh, yeah, do you know what? Actually, you caught me out there. <laughs> I, should, I should say greater than two. Yeah, all right. So, yeah, I'll give you that, two. <laughs> two itself is a prime number, isn't it? Yeah. So, yeah, greater than two. I should have actually said that. Is there any examples greater than two, though? Or did you all think, oh, it's two? <laughs> all right, because, I put this up because uh, we don't know. Right, we don't know if that's true or false. So we haven't found a proof that shows it's true, and we haven't found an example, greater than two, we haven't found an example where it is false either, so we don't know. That's actually called Goldbach's conjecture. So this prompted uh, a question. So there was a German mathematician at the beginning of the 20th century called David Hilbert, and he set a question as a challenge to 20th century mathematicians, and he said, is there a method that can always determine whether something is true or false. So you give it a question, you apply the method, right? it might be a procedure, a method, or something like that, it's a magic formula, you apply it, and then it's going to tell me if it's true or false. Now, if that, is, if that exists, that means it will solve the Goldbach conjecture. We'll just give it the Goldbach conjecture, you just run through the process, right? you don't have to do anything clever, and the answer will pop out the other side. It will say true or false. It doesn't have to be efficient, doesn't mean it could take a million years, I don't know. It doesn't have to be efficient, but eventually it will give me the answer. If I, ha if I just use it and do all my homework questions, I'll never have to do my homework again. If, I, if this exists, it will put mathematicians out of a job. So there was a problem with this question, though. So they discovered a problem with this question. Now, let me show you. I'll do another quick three true or falses. Uh, let's see what you think of these and we might notice what the problem is with this question. Okay, true or false, quickly we'll do this. This sentence contains an even number of letters. Now again, I can give you 10 seconds to let you work that one out. Is that true or false? Tell you what, let's see if you can get this answer first, or who's winning, okay, go for it. You think it's false, do you know how many letters there are? How did you do it instead? You counted in fours, perfect, no, absolutely. So you just knocked off fours, groups of four, and you said it was false, and you're absolutely right, it is false. Uh, there are 41 letters in that message, so that's false. Okay, how about this? The last sentence was false. True or false? Votes for true? Votes for false. Some people are not sure. Vote, no, that was true. It was false, wasn't it? Yeah, last sentence was false. That's true. Okay. This sentence is false. <laughs> All right. Votes for true. Votes for false. <laughs> yeah, I'm for both. I like it. Votes for other. <laughs> other? It, what's other mean, though? What's other? Uh, so this is uh, called the liar's paradox. Yes. So if that is true, then it contradicts itself. And if it's false it contradicts itself. And what mathematicians discovered in the 1930s is that there are mathematical statements like this, like the Lies Paradox. They either contradict themselves, or if they're true, you can't prove them. And this was a problem in mathematics. That means there are true things in maths that we can't prove. There are holes in maths. There are things that are true, but we just can't prove. Uh, so this became a problem. So this question uh, was changed. 
I don't want a method that can tell me if it's true or false. I want a method that can tell me if something is provable or not. Because not everything is. So some things are not provable. So is there a method that can tell me if this is a statement that can be proven or not? Or is it like a liar's paradox problem? Uh, so this is the problem that they, oh, sorry, this is the problem that Alan Turing decided to take on. Uh, so to solve this problem, he conceived of a hypothetical machine. And this is a machine that could do any calculation. Right? This machine could do any calculation that a man could do. Uh, any calculation, any mathematical proof. Right? The machine, he called the computing machine. The man whose job it replaced, he called the computer. And that is the beginning of computer science today. And the question became, okay, if I give this machine a mathematical question, it will run. It will run, and if it gives me an answer, it will stop and give me the answer. Uh, if there isn't an answer, it will just run forever. So is there a way to tell if the machine will stop or run forever? That was the question now, and the answer is no. So Alan Turing answered that in the negative. It is not possible to always tell if the machine will stop or run forever. If it was possible, Alan Turing could set up another liar's paradox and show that this is something the machine can't answer. So there are things that the machine can't answer. So he solved the problem, one of the great unsolved problems at that point, and he was 22 years old at that time. Hate him. <laughs> right, this is before he did his PhD, right? Before he did his PhD. So he goes off and does his PhD in Princeton. He then comes back a couple of years later, and he starts working part-time as a code breaker, and they were working on this thing here. So if you remember what I said at the beginning, this is what Nazi Germany are using in World War II to send their secrets. Now, if the Allies in World War II, if they could break this code, they'll be able to read all those German secrets, which is exactly what happened. Uh, the story of this one, which I'm now going to show off to you, uh, I'll tell you what I know. I was told this machine was found after the war in a French field. That's all I know, that's all I know. I just I imagine they ran away or something, left it behind, I don't know. Uh, the guy who found this was an American guy who took it home. That was, the, that was his souvenir, I think. He said, oh, that's mine. So he took it, he thought, I'll take that home. Where, when that guy died, this machine was sold. It now belongs to a friend of mine. Uh, so this is his own private Enigma machine. This doesn't belong to a museum. It's his own private Enigma machine. But so that we can see it, you may have noticed I was doing a setup again. So I can now use my camera again. So we can all see what's going on. Now, this is an old machine. It is what, 81 years old. If this breaks down, if it goes wrong, um, forgive it or forgive me, okay? Because it is 81 years old. It can be temperamental. You're allowed to be temperamental when you're 81 years old, okay? Uh, but fingers crossed, it'll work. It should work. Okay. So let's have a look at what this looks like. So this is what Germany are using in World War II. So it's a beautiful looking thing. It's all old-fashioned 1930s technology. So it's all wood and steel. Uh, but it's pretty much like a typewriter. It, it looks like a typewriter. It works like a typewriter. So I'm going to type in a message. I'm going to send you a message now using this in code. Uh, it should be a message in German. It should be something about Bratwurst or Schnitzel or something. Or Schadenfreude, something like that. Uh, but I'll keep it easy. I'll, I'll say hello. Nice, easy message. So I'm going to say hello instead. Right? So if I type in hello into this machine, let's see what happens. All right. So I'm going to press the H first of all. We should be okay with this. If I press the H here, fingers crossed. Yeah, great. And if you can see that, the letter X lights up and that's the code lighting up there so h became x there so the code lights up i'm doing hello so i'm going to do the next letter e if i do e in hello if you can see that that's the letter q lighting up if i do l in hello that's a p if i do the next l in hello that's an r and you finish it you do the o oh and that's an h right so that's the code lighting up the machine itself doesn't transmit the code it doesn't send anything so someone has to stand next to you, and they're sort of looking over your shoulder, and they're 
looking at the code, they're writing it down on a piece of paper, then they can transmit that by radio or whatever. Now, you may have noticed something about that code. There was something weird that happened when I sent that message. You may have noticed the two L's. Did you notice the two L's were different? Now, this is why the Germans thought they had an unbreakable code. If I do this again, if I press A here, let's see what I've got. Okay, that's an E. If I keep pressing it, it's actually a different code every time. It's a different code for each letter of the message, and there's no pattern to that. There's no way to predict what it's going to be next. So let's see how this works. So uh, I'm gonna open this up. If you see one in the future, which might be in a museum, it's gonna be in a glass box, it's gonna be on display. So what I can do now is actually open it up, show you the insides of it. So I'm gonna show you the insides of this machine. Let's open this up. There you go. So beautiful thing again, not quite a typewriter inside though. Things to notice, uh, we've got these little lights up here. You can see those, like little Christmas lights. Uh, we've got those three big wheels at the top. Those wheels are called rotors. Inside those rotors, it's full of wires. So I want you to imagine inside the rotors, it's full of wires, and all the wires are a bit crisscross as well. They're all kind of a bit like spaghetti. If you can imagine all those wires crisscrossing each other and muddled up inside. Now look what happens when I press a letter. I press a letter. If you can see that, the rotors move when I type. So this one's moving every time I press, click, click, click. Eventually, when this rotor on the right, when it does a full turn, it's going to kick the middle rotor one place forwards. I'm not sure when it happens, let me try. If I keep pressing, eventually it'll do a big turn. It's gonna happen now, click. And the middle rotor moves forwards, and then the, the right one keeps going. Eventually, it'll do another full turn, and it'll kick the middle rotor again one place forwards. Eventually, the middle rotor does a full turn, and it kicks the left rotor one place forward. So I'm saying they're going at different speeds. You've got a fast one, you've got a middle one, and you've got a slow moving one. Uh, I like to think of it like, uh, like a clock, like hands on a clock. Like you've got a minute hand, hour hand, second hand, same action. So one goes round, one goes click like that. Now these rotors actually come out. You can actually swap the order. You can change the order of the rotors. In fact, they had a box of five to pick from. So you'd have a box of five, you put them into the machine. Each rotor has 26 starting places. And one other thing to show you down here at the front. Now, it's not easy to see here at the front. It's all in black here. But if I pull this out, put this on my hand, you've got wires down here at the front. This is called the plug board. You've got wires down here at the front. They connect one letter to another. This just does extra scrambling here at the front. So this does an extra level of scrambling down here. If you change the position of those, uh, those wires, you change the code. Now, it's a very difficult machine, but I think I can explain how it works. It's all it is really. It's actually, it's the most simple thing you can do. It's just a battery with a light. I mean, it's the most simple thing you can make, really. A battery connected to a light, the light turns on. There's a battery here. That's a, that's a conversion, that's a, that's a modern battery. That would have been an old 1940s battery in there. That's a, that's a double A now. So that's just a conversion. So we've got a battery in there. If I press a button, this battery, let's get one to light up, will go through all the wiring. And do you remember I said the wiring is inside the rotors as well? So it goes through all the wiring and eventually connects to that light and that light turns on. It's just a battery connected to a light. But this is the clever part. When I press this button again, this rotor will turn. And when it turns, all the wires get turned forwards one place which means the battery then gets connected to a different light, so it changes. So let's do that, I'm gonna press this again, turn the rotor, all the wires get turned forwards, so it's this light connecting to the battery instead. Uh, I'll do it one more time. Click it, turn the rotor, so now it's this light connecting to the battery. So it changes which light connects to the battery. In fact, what I'll do with you guys, don't always do this, but I'll do it with you. What I've got on my computer, somewhere is, in fact, uh, a simulator. Enigma machine simulator, you can get this. Google for it, download it, you can try it out yourself. Right, it works like a real Enigma machine. So if I do this, ah, I'll press a letter. Uh, I'll press, why not A? If I press A, okay, so B lights up there. But this is what I wanted to show you. 
I click this button here, I'm going to show you the wires inside the Enigma machine. Now, if you remember what I said, inside the machine, it's all like spaghetti and all like crisscross wires. That's what you're going to see when I press this button. It might look complicated. Don't be put off, okay? This is the insides of Enigma. And it is, it's just full of wires, right? Crisscrossing each other, wires, wires. But look what happens. I pressed A, because when I press A, follow the yellow line, it goes through the machine. It gets scrambled and then scrambled and scrambled and scrambled. It actually then loops back. It actually comes back through the machine again in reverse. It goes, goes through twice. And then finally, it connects to B, and B lights up. But if I keep pressing A repeatedly like that, A, 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 have a look what happens next. So the wires move. So what, A becomes I there, then the wires move, A becomes K, then the wires move, A becomes B. So the path of that yellow line changes each time. That's why you're connecting to a different letter each time. That's why it's always changing. Now, this is no good if we can't get the message back. Let me show you how to get the message back again. All right. So we're going to decode a message as well. So for this, we'll do something easy. We'll do a quick message. Um, I'll do hi, because it's short. Hi, hi. Okay, hi. How you doing? So hi, two letters, HI. So I'm going to send that off in code, first of all. So let's see what that becomes. So hi, let's do the H. Okay, I've got M, and I becomes W, MW. Okay, so you'd write that down. You would transmit that message, so it will travel far away. Then maybe somewhere on a ship, maybe somewhere, you've got your second German officer. They're receiving that code, so they've got it now. They've got oh, MW, they've got the code. That second officer has an Enigma machine too. He's got one. He's got one of these machines as well. His machine is exactly the same as the first one. It has to be exactly the same. So there's one thing I have to do now. When I said hi, that rotor on the right, it moved forwards two places. I'm going to move it back to where it was. I'm going to rewind this rotor back to where it was two places. One, two, because that's where it started. So I've reset the machine. But this time, I'm going to type in the code instead. MW? All right, let's see what happens. I'll type in the code. If I press M in the code, M becomes H. And if I press W in the code, W becomes I. And you go, hi. And you get the message back again. It's a code and decode machine. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. It's almost like magic. It's just really clever engineering. So you type your message in, makes a code. Type the code in, get the message back again. Right. Now, if the allies can break this code, they'll be able to read all those German secret messages. I hope you can see why the Germans were proud of it, though. Because it's a code and decode machine, but it's always changing as well. It's always changing, but if you're set the same, it will code and decode. By the way, how did these two people know how to set their machines the same? What they had is they had instructions. They had it changed every day. The settings changed every day. But every day you have instructions that tell you how to set the machine for that day. If you lose those instructions, you won't know how to set the machine. In fact, what I might do here is I can actually show you what those, in, those uh, instruction books look like. Uh, again, when I do this, it might look complicated. Don't worry, okay? So this is what a code book looked like. So you had a machine and you had a book that looked like this as well. And this told you how to set the machine for each day. In fact, just look. On the left, can you see the date? Look, 1 to 31. So this was a monthly book. It lasted one month. 1 to 31 there. So what's today? It's the 18th, right? Let's look at the 18th. This tells you how to set the machine for that day. I'll go through this quickly. Here, the first column here with the Roman numerals. Uh, if you remember, I said there were five rotors that they could choose from. Rotor 1, rotor 2, rotor 3, rotor 4, and rotor 5. Yeah, you're with me. Okay. Rotor 5. So on the 18th, you're using rotor 4, rotor 5, and rotor 1 in that order. And it tells you how to set the rotor. Uh, I'll tell you what, I might gloss over that. This one here uh, with the pairs, can you see those pairs of letters? Uh, that's the plugboard at the front of the machine. Do you remember the plugboard at the front? It was in black here at the front. At the front, you have the alphabet. So with a wire, you connect one letter to another in a pair. 
So this is telling you how to set 10 of those pairs up. It's actually 10 pairs we make here. So just follow the instructions and you can set up the plug board. And this setting, this is pretty much like the rotor starting position, so where you start the rotor. If you lose those instructions though, you won't know how to set the machine for that day. Nice story, the Navy would write those code books in soluble ink. So if your ship is torpedoed and your ship sinks, that book gets wet, the ink would wash away. That's how you keep the secrets of the code book. Nice that. Now, it was important to break this code. The first people who broke this code were the Polish. Is anyone Polish here? Hey, okay, so this is for you. Okay, so the Polish did this first. They already knew that Germany was a threat in the 1930s, before the war. They'd already started breaking Enigma codes. Uh, and they did, successfully as well. Uh, oh, go on, I'll tell you this. I wasn't going to tell you the story, but I'm going to put it in anyway, because I like it. Um, this is absolutely brilliant. So some people in the future, they might tell you, oh, we had to break Enigma codes, and we had to steal Enigma machines to find out how they worked. That's not true. What the Polish mathematicians were able to do, and I love this, the Polish mathematicians were able to work out how this machine worked without even seeing the machine. Just from the codes, they were able to completely reverse engineer the machine, all the wiring inside, and build their own replica without seeing the machine. So we never did have to steal one. The machine was never the mystery. We knew how it worked. The machine was never the mystery. The mystery is what setting are they using today? That's the bit we don't know, because that changes every day. So every day, we'd have to work out the setting for that day. That's the mystery. So five weeks before Poland was invaded, they passed their information on to the British, and the British continued their work. Uh, Alan Turing was put in charge of Hut 8. Uh, Hut 8 was in charge of breaking Navy Enigma codes. Uh, because the Polish methods were working, uh, but they weren't able to break the Navy codes. The Germans were did something slightly different in the Navy, so they weren't able to break the Navy version of Enigma. And the other problem was uh, the Polish method was a bit fragile, and if the Germans changed their procedures, it was likely the Polish method was going to stop working soon. So what the British needed was to come up with a method to replace the Polish idea. So that's what they needed to do. So this was Alan Turing's job. He thought, great, fantastic. This is an open problem for myself. And he did spot a flaw in the machine. Uh, in fact, you may have noticed this flaw in the machine. I think earlier, I was over here. I was pressing A over and over again repeatedly. I kept changing the code. I think that's what I was doing. If I keep pressing that letter A, eventually you'll get every code letter coming up at some point except for one. There's one letter it can't become. And if you're ahead of me, yeah, it can't become itself. It could be anything except itself. So A is never A. A B is never B. A Z is never a Z. That's a clue. It's not much of a clue. It's a little clue. It's a little clue. But it's just enough to help them break the code. What they would do is they would take an Enigma code, right? So it's all in code. You can't read it. It's all in code. But they would try and guess a word that might be in that code, right? A word or a phrase that might be in that code. Uh, so, okay, let's do this. Uh, and they would often end their messages with Heil Hitler. So let's, let's use that, okay? So let's say we're gonna guess this message ends with Heil Hitler at the end, right? Easy. Okay, so Heil Hitler, 10 letters, Heil Hitler. So I'm gonna take 10 letters near the end of the code, right? And I'm gonna guess that says Heil Hitler, which is a guess. But I have a clue as well. I know a letter can't be itself. So that bit of code can't start with H, because I can't have H becoming H in Heil Hitler, because that's impossible, never happens. Or I can't have E second, because that would mean E matches with E in Heil Hitler. I'm not allowed to have a match. If I have a match, that means I've guessed it wrong. It's not Heil Hitler. Right? I have to try a different guess. Right? But as long as I don't have a match, okay, maybe it is. It is still a guess. And now I need to find out the correct Enigma setting that makes that guess true, to make that little bit of code say Heil Hitler, like I think it does. And Alan Turing designed this code-breaking machine to help them with this. It's called the bomb. Uh, it's this massive machine. You can see how big this machine is. So you've got a woman there 
So it's right. So it's bigger than me, right? It's big. It's a big noisy machine as well. It would rattle around, big noisy thing, and this could help you find the Enigma setting for that day. This is not a computer. It's on the way, but not really there yet. This is not a computer. But yeah, this could help you find the Enigma setting in 20 minutes. It was pretty good. In 1914, you know, 20 minutes. What that meant was the British were breaking these codes, reading these German secrets, before the Germans had a chance to decode them. The British knew what was happening in the German army before the Germans knew what was happening. It was amazing you can do that. Uh, I might give you the gist of this very quickly. This machine is not actually looking for the correct setting. There's a lot of ways to set up the Enigma machine. I said you could swap the rotors, change their position, change the wires. Number of ways of setting up the Enigma machine is a big number. It's 159 million, million, million ways of setting up this machine. This is not just searching through every possible setting. It would take too long. It's not possible. There are too many settings to check. So it wasn't just checking through every setting. This machine is actually a process of elimination. It's actually looking for the wrong settings to throw away. It's actually easier and quicker to throw away the wrong settings than to go looking for the right settings. In fact, what you can do is when you throw one setting away, you can actually throw away a whole bunch of other settings at the same time, at a stroke. So altogether, they get thrown away at the same time. So there, by throwing away all the wrong settings, whatever it can't be, whatever you can't eliminate must therefore be the correct answer. So it's a little bit backwards, but it was actually faster. It's like looking for a needle in a haystack, but you're looking for a needle in a haystack by removing the straw. So whatever remains must be the correct answer. After the war, Alan Turing uh, continues his work in uh, computing, artificial intelligence, and mathematical biology. In particular, he was interested in why do you get a Fibonacci number of spirals in a sunflower? Uh, and the other question he was interested in, which is his last great work, was uh, something to do with animal patterns. Uh, he was interested in animal patterns, in particular, why do you get patches on a cow? Why do you get stripes on a zebra or on a zebrafish? Or why do you get spots on a leopard or a cheetah or something like that? And to solve this, he actually considered the chemical reactions that make color in an animal as it grows. And there are reactions that create color and reactions that inhibit color, that stop color. But these reactions are happening at different rates, right? Like the iodine clock experiment, they're happening at different rates. And when you model the different rates, the equation that you get in the end is actually something called a wave equation. It's the same equation that describes a wave on water. So imagine like hitting a symbol, right? So you're hitting a symbol like that and you're creating a wave. But you know, try and create a standing wave so you get these peaks and troughs like that. But this time, instead of just hitting a symbol, try and imagine hitting a symbol in the shape of a cow, right? So yeah, like that. And you're creating peaks and troughs. And where those peaks and troughs are is where the color appears on the animal, which explains why you get uh, patches on a cow, stripes on a zebra, and spots on a leopard. And Alan Turing actually described this uh, method as waves on cows and waves on leopards. Now, it was important to break this code. Uh, Winston Churchill, you all know Winston Churchill, of course, we're talking about Prime Minister in World War II. Winston Churchill, big fan of this stuff that they were doing in World War II, he used to ask about it, he used to get daily reports about it, very interested in it. Actually, where is he? Winston Churchill. We'll pull him up. Where are we? No. <laughs> Winston Churchill said the code breakers were the geese that laid the golden eggs, uh, which is a slightly strange thing to say. Yeah. He was probably drunk at the time. <laughs> but never cackled, yeah. Uh, so I think what he's talking about here is he's saying the work they're doing is so valuable, so important. These secrets they're getting are so valuable, they're like golden egg. But yes, they never spoke about it. Uh, these code breakers, they weren't allowed to tell their friends about it, their families, it was all top secret. After the war, they had a big bonfire at Bletchley Park. They burnt all the works, it was all destroyed. And all those machines that I showed you, those code breaker machines were all destroyed as well. 
because it was all top secret work. But by breaking this code, historians reckon these guys shortened the war. They say they shortened the war by two years. Right, there's Winston Churchill agreeing with me, okay, two years, right? And in doing so, they saved lives. And they're not soldiers, these people. They weren't fighting around the world. It's about using your brains to save lives. It's brains over bullets. I tell you what, okay, in lieu of a better punchline, I will leave it at that. I'll say thank you very much, and then we'll take some questions. Thank you. Yeah, so I'm ready to take some questions now. Now, I have a feeling that you want to quiz me, right? And I'm ready for grilling, all right? I'm looking forward to it. All right, we've got one already. So, yeah, you do have a breather as well, but I am ready for questions. There's a guy over there. Now, I believe we have a microphone. I hope you're good at catching. We do have roving mics if you're nearer the edge, but since you do conveniently happen to be smack in the middle. Yay! Three, one. <laughs> Is that working? Is it working? Try again. Hello? Yeah, I think that worked, didn't it? Um, I believe there were further incarnations of the machine that had additional rotors. So um, can you tell us how, by how many more combinations, setup combinations, each rotor, additional rotor would okay. have added? Okay, so, so yeah, you've heard that there were other machines, later versions of the machines that had additional rotors, and that's true. Uh, it's only the U-boats, only the submarines. They had a, a special version just for the submarines. It wasn't straight away. They did this in 1942, so it wasn't straight away. And what they did is they added a fourth rotor. In fact, they just took the existing machine that they already had and put in a fourth rotor. Uh, that fourth rotor wasn't interchangeable with the other rotors. It was slightly thinner. It wasn't an interchangeable rotor. Uh, so all it did was make it 26 times harder. It was only 26 times harder because it was just the 26 settings. Uh, so that's actually not a big deal, although it did lock us out of the code. We were locked out of the submarine code for 10 months in 1942, but that was a bit of a disaster, especially with the Americans. The Americans needed to know where the submarines were, and we were providing that information. Suddenly, we're locked out, so we were bluffing. We were just going, oh, yeah, we're going to get you that submarine information, so I'm just going to move my pencils, and then I'm going to get on to that. Uh, so the Americans were going, come on, this is silly now, come on, we've got to do this. So we had this uh, special meeting with the Americans, and the Americans said, what's going on? So they got these four rotors, uh, so the Americans started to build four rotor bomb machines. It's actually, and now this is a good, ex good place to show you, that machine, oh, who's that? That machine, if I go back, is actually an American machine. You can tell it's an American machine because it has four places for the Enigmas, for ro Enigma rotors. So this is an American machine, because they built these four. Uh, the British did something different, because these submarines, because uh, they had four rotors, they had to communicate with base, and they had three rotors that day. So to communicate with base, there was a setting that made the fourth rotor go into neutral, do nothing. So, and then it would turn it into a three rotor machine, like normal. So if you intercept a message from the submarine to base, you can actually break it using the three-rotor bomb machine, just like a normal message, and then you work out the fourth one by hand. That's what the, that's what the British did. Uh, any other questions? I've got one from over there. I'm going to try and get... Oh, you can... You can from the diaphragm. Yeah, yeah. So the, who designed the Enigma machine? It was a German engineer called Arthur Scherbius. Arthur Scherbius, um, he's famous in some circles. There, are, there is a Scherbius principle and things like that named after him. Uh, this idea was in fashion at the time, uh, but he actually invented the Enigma in 1918. So this is way before World War II as well. So the Enigma is not just a Nazi code machine. It's not just a World War II code machine. It's what the Germans were already using. So the military were using these in the 20s and the 30s, even before World War II. Mm. Oh, yeah, go on. Did the English have a code machine? Did I get that? Yeah. 
So did the English have a code machine? Yes, yes, we did. Uh, so before the war, the British had a code which wasn't good enough, and the Germans were breaking our code. And we know the Germans were breaking our code because we were breaking their code, saying that they had broken our code. <laughs> right? <laughs> right. So we had to get something better. And what we did is we saw Enigma, we ripped off the idea. <laughs> we ripped it off. We said, that's good, we'll have that. We completely stole the idea. So we had a machine called Type X, uh, which worked exactly the same way as Enigma, except it was more secure. And the reason it was more secure, do you remember, do you remember those rotors inside when they were moving? And it was a bit like clockwork. So one goes round, and one goes kick, and one goes round, one goes kick. Uh, so our machine worked the same way, except when the rotor turned, the next rotor turned more often. It turned five times, seven times, not just once. Uh, and so they clicked more often, uh, and that made it harder to break. In theory, you could have broken it the same way, but because the rotors turn more often, that's harder. Uh, I'm ready for questions. I've got, I see one over here, I've got one here. How are we doing for time? Loads of time. Oh, look, we got a mic. Bill. Did Turing uh, have anything to do with breaking the L Lorenz cipher? Ah, oh, you're my favourite. <laughs> Did L Turing have anything to break? Make? Okay, I'm going to have to take. Yeah, I love Lorenz. Um, so Enigma is the famous one. You, I already established you've heard of Enigma. You've seen the film. Okay, boring. All right, Enigma, boring. Um, there was another machine. The Germans had another code machine, which is not as famous as Enigma, and I think it's a shame that it's not as famous as Enigma, so I'm trying to promote it. Uh, so thanks, you could have been a plant. That was brilliant. Um, there was a code machine that was even harder than Enigma, even more difficult than Enigma, and this machine was called Lorenz, and it was used by uh, the top level of the Nazi party, including Adolf Hitler himself. Uh, this is for the top most serious messages. Uh, yeah, even harder than Enigma, uh, and we broke that code too. Yes, absolutely. And Alan Turing did have something to do with that. Uh, he had something, because he had a bit of, you know, he had, he, was, he had fingers in many pies, so he did a bit of everything in Bletchley Park. Uh, he did have something to do with it, but I'd like to promote someone else as well, uh, a guy called Bill Tut, who was a mathematician. And Bill Tut, uh, what Bill Tut was able to do was uh, like the Polish, do you remember the Polish story when I said they worked out Enigma? Bill Tut worked out Lorenz, Hitler's code machine, without ever seeing Lorenz. This is absolutely brilliant. So yeah, Alan Turing did, but Bill Tut is someone I'm trying to promote as well, another mathematician. Uh, okay, which question should I take next? Okay, I'm gonna go down here and I'm, I'm gonna work my way up as well. Yeah, so Choin designed it. Uh, I should be truthful as well. Choin designed it. Another guy called Gordon Welchman helped. He did a bit of it as well. And it was actually built in a factory uh, by a guy called Doc Keane. So there's really three people I should mention. Alan Choin designed it. Gordon Welchman did some of it as well. And Doc Keane is a guy who built it. So you see in the imitation game, there's Alan Choin actually building the thing. It, that didn't happen. It was somewhere else. Someone else built it somewhere else. Yeah, does that answer your question? Oh, how long did it take to make? Now, that's interesting. I guess, I think they started designing it straight away, and I think the first one was built in March 1940. So I think it took six months altogether to design it and build the first one. Uh, but in the war, they had 200 of these in the end, so they must have got better. They must have got better and faster at it. Uh, Can we do two more questions? Two more, I'm ready for two more, yeah. Who should I pick? Okay, I'm gonna pick the, this guy over here, and then I'll come and pick a, a young person next. Oh, you've got a yellow mic behind you. Um, one of the things you mentioned was the German Navy had an extra rotor at some yeah. point, and it locked, it locked uh, the, the British intelligence out for 10 months. Surely that would have been an indication that we've added an extra rotor, our submarines are being sunk for war, the tonnage of shipping we're sinking is less. Did, was there any indication that the Germans were suspicious uh, and took that further? Yeah, so is there any indication the Germans were suspicious? Yeah, so I think, believe um, the reason they, the submarines added that fourth rotor is because they were suspicious. The Admiral, Admiral Donitz, said, um, we keep sinking our supply ships. 
why do they keep sinking our supply ship? And the people around him said, you know, he said, no, is, no, is the Enigma broken? The people around him said, no, Enigma is unbreakable. You can't break Enigma. No, it's probably not Enigma. It's probably a spy. He's probably got a spy. It's probably that, it's that Italian bloke up in high command. I don't like him. I think it's his fault. See, it must be him. All right, so they were always blaming a spy, which actually is a more natural explanation. It's a more simpler explanation. Turns out they were wrong. You were breaking these Enigma codes all along. Uh, and yes, you have to be careful about which ships you break because you don't want to make it obvious that we've broken the code. So you have to pick and choose. You can't save every life. There's a, a moral question in that as well. You can't save every life. And go on, I'll go down here. Okay, that's great. I'll repeat that question. What happens if the rotor on the left, the slow one, goes all the way around? So that will reset you back to the beginning. You're right. So there's a reason there's three rotors. If I only had one and I press a button, it would go all the way around and then the pattern would repeat. That's bad. The pattern would repeat every 26 seconds. So because there's three, the first one goes round, the next one goes click, and the pattern doesn't repeat, so you can keep going. To get back to where I started, I would have to press a button 17,576 times before I get back to where I started and the pattern repeats. That's why there's three. But yeah, if you finally do that, if you sit there just pressing it 17,000 times, you'll get back to the beginning and it'll start again. And maybe maybe one more on this, what do you think? Uh, yeah, we've just got uh, one. Okay, let's take one more. If you have one more, I'm going to make you sweat for it. I'm going to go to the very back. Okay. I'm going to get... Oh, no, there's a mic up there. Go on, that's someone, someone near the back up there, but I'll let, I'll let you pick. I've got two hands up there. Go on, we've got one here. Uh, hi. I went to Birchseed Park a few years ago, and when I was there, they, they had a bomb machine. I was wondering if that's an original, they salvaged, or they rebuilt it. Yeah, nice question. It's, it's a replica. Yeah, so all those bomb machines were pulled apart. Uh, and they were, it was actually Winston Churchill who said, destroy everything. Because the next threat was Russia. And they didn't want Russia to know what we could and could not do. So he said, destroy everything, right? We're going we're gonna to move. They moved. We're going to destroy everything we don't need. Uh, all the machines were destroyed. It sounds a strange thing to do, though, to destroy a thing. But it was Winston Churchill who said. So they destroyed everything. Those machines were recycled. They weren't just destroyed. The parts were reused in other machines. So they weren't just destroyed. And uh, I think two of them, perhaps, were taken away somewhere secret. But in the end, those were destroyed as well. Uh, and so none of them exist. So Blessley Park Museum uh, rebuilt the bomb machine, which wasn't easy because they didn't have complete plans or anything. They had bits of it. They had people who were there who remembered how it worked. That's how they did it. People who were there who remembered how it worked, bits of plans, some bits of photos, and then anything else you can sort of guess. How, you know, oh, it must work this way, has to. Uh, and so, yeah, it's a replica. But you can go to Bletchley Park Museum, you can see uh, a working replica bomb machine. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a nice place to start. I will finish there. I'll say thank you again. I don't know, I might get kicked out, I might get told off. I might get 10 minutes, though. If you want to come and have a photograph of the machine, have a look and say hello to me, uh, we should be able to do that. Being's going to kick me out soon. All right. All right. Thank you. I get all the time.